Welcome to Talking Moves, a podcast from Greenwich Dance, where dance artists come together to talk about their work and practice, the things that matter and the issues which move them. I'm Melanie Precious, and in this episode, I'm talking with two artists about making positive change. There are two lines I've stolen from my guest websites, which I think in many ways sum up today's conversation. Valerie Abua sets about to make shit happen. She's written articles about how to grow wings and knowing your aesthetic and has urged readers of her blog to lead with your strongest foot to ensure a solid journey to the skies. And Kwesi Johnson believes creativity and innovation is the highest use of intelligence. It begins as a thought and becomes reality. That is the power of imagination and desire. So today we talk to these two inspirational artists about how they harness their creativity to make positive change in the world. Valerie Abua, freelance dance artist, activist, writer and model, and Kwesi Johnson, creative director of the Cultural Assembly and former artistic director of Company Malachi. So, Valerie, you started dancing at 18 and I heard you talk at a webinar for Dance Umbrella where you said most people think that's late, but I think it was perfect timing. Tell us about that. What ingredients, experiences, training do you think make up the innovator that is you? Oh, wow. (laughs) What a fantastic question. Yeah, um, I believe that my life experience just in general feeds into who I am as a dancer. So the 18 years that I wasn't dancing, I feel like I was gaining all the other skills that I needed to be able to become the artist that I am today. Once I finished my dance training, I really felt like there was things in my practice that was missing, i.e. writing. And, you know, I often make earrings. I really like to be practical and to use my hands. And I really think that In order to be an innovator in particular, you have to do what's not really been done before. And the only way that you can do that is using all the things that you have, using all the tools that you have available to you. I didn't grow up with, you know, money. I'm from a working class home background. So I think just that as my background, uh, just in general, kind of breeds innovation anyway, because you have to use the resources that you have available, which is not much (laughs) usually. But... Yeah, I've always kind of known since I was a little girl that I was going to be a dancer. I always knew. Um, Somehow I caught the dancing bug from three, so I always knew. But I really believe that actually my parents didn't want me to dance. And I've kind of believed that that rebellion, (laughs) that kind of rebellion fused with kind of my upbringing and my education and all these kind of things actually aided me in my kind of dance journey and career. That's interesting. little touch of rebellion in there. Mm. Kwesi, what about you? Where did your journey begin and why dance? My performing journey started when I was about seven, when I used to perform for my family on the table in my back room, singing Michael Jackson songs like Ben. That's when I first started performing. I'm not afraid or ashamed to say that because Michael Jackson is one of the greatest musical recording artists. Well, he's earlier stuff. Anyway, so later on, my sister bought me a version of uh, Rapper's Delight, and that was the first time I heard rap. That then led me into getting into hip-hop culture and I started to dance as a b-boy, which is known as a break dancer or a b-boy. So that's what my first dance experiences were. I went to a college in Leicester, which was then called Charles Keane College, and I was training one of my best friends. We both started breaking. We were good friends at school together and we did a foundation course. And then we said, shall we go to Northern for the experience of auditioning the following year? But we both got in that year. And so we thought, "Mm, what shall we do? So it's one of those things. Actually, when you said you're 18, I was the same age, Valerie. Mm. So it was 18. It's like, 18, 19, what do we do? 
And it was one of those things of, I'll do it if you do it. And we both did it. So we had three years at Northern, which was just absolutely amazing time. So much so that I think I had three days off in the whole of the three years. So after we first did our first dream job together, because we both wanted to work with Lloyd Newson, and we both did it on our first job from leaving college. Oh, wow. Where do you go from there? Exactly. Because then my second job was with Phoenix. And that was my second company I wanted to work with. Then my third job was with Black Mime Theatre. And that was my third company I wanted to work with. And I did it through my first three jobs. And it literally was, where do you go from there? But where I went from there, similar to Valerie, it was, there's something missing. I'd gone through this contemporary training, tights, ballet shoes, beautiful, you know, experience. But actually when I was making work or seeing work, I'm like, I don't see any representation of what I used to be. So that's when I started to kind of play and fuse those two forms together, hip hop culture, contemporary dance, storytelling. So we're not just creating using the breaking or the street dances for display. We're using them to tell stories. And I did my first, I suppose, what's now known as hip hop theatre, because I didn't even know the term then, in 1994. Just had my 28th anniversary because it was April the 24th in Nottingham. So yeah, I was one of the first people to do what's now known as hip hop theatre in the UK. 1984 there was lots of other people that had been doing stuff but that was my route into dance and uh, kind of never looked back since I didn't always know that I wanted to be a dancer the thing that got me was music it was black music my brothers sisters all used to play music all the time black music and that was the thing that really kind of got me and then I felt that I wanted to move the rest is history I knew coming into this podcast that I was going to be inspired by you two. And already I've got two gems, that feeling of rebellion being in the mix and that belief that you had, Kwesi, not an arrogant belief, just, right, this is what I'm going to do, then I'm going to do this next, then I'm going to do this next, and it all happened, that kind of power of the mind. We're going to delve into so much more. But Valerie, in your blog, you ask readers to ask themselves, who am I? And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about why you implore that creatives ask themselves that. I think it's really important because mainly in dance schools, you're not really taught, you're not really asked. I mean, I don't remember anyway being asked what I actually wanted to do beyond leaving. So I went to London Contemporary Dance School and I really felt like I was prescribed a way of being or prescribed a way of moving that I think just on a kind of technical level is quite great. So you have this kind of foundation. But when I left, I really thought to myself, okay, but like, what am I beyond this kind of training? What makes me the dancer that I am and what makes me special? What makes me kind of stand out? And you're not really taught that. And I think it's just because the dance industry is trying to... Well, I don't want to say the whole industry because that's <laughs> that's a, a bit of hyperbole. But I would say there's kind of like a cookie cutter template yeah. what makes a kind of a good dancer, um, a certain type of skills, certain types of qualities. And what that does is it kind of excludes a whole range of other bodies, movement styles, qualities, that if they're all on it, then we have this kind of, well, we have a really exciting industry. Yeah. <laughs> it starts to become a place that values difference and that values uniqueness rather than just trying to produce the same results. Yeah. And I've just never really been interested in looking like or being like other people. And maybe that's a personal thing. I think it's probably also because being a black woman in a predominantly white industry, I don't really look or dance like anyone else anyway. Um, so I kind of gave up on trying to fit the mould, but I wanted to really encourage people to really look 
and find within themselves how they move and be confident in putting that out there. I think it's just really important. I really feel like you're supposed to instill confidence in dancers and in movers and not trying to homogenise things. I've never really seen the point of that. I've always wanted to celebrate people and their uniqueness. And there's something about understanding yourself there, isn't there, of really understanding what your strengths are, what you represent, your values, and then going out and finding the fit to you rather than trying to make yourself fit into whatever mould, you use that word mould, whatever mould somebody else has got their waiting, which I really loved. And Kwesi, when I was looking at your website, you set out to teach people how to unleash their creative genius. And on your website, you talk about finding your why. And I wondered if you'd tell us a little bit more about that. The why is the thing that keeps you going, that keeps you getting up in the morning. If you are dancing, it keeps you when you're told that your body isn't right or, you know, you don't look right or you don't fit in. It's the why. That's the thing. That's your engine. That's your coal. That's your fire that drives you to do the things that you want to do. And that can actually not just be, oh, I want to be a dancer. He actually might be saying, oh, I'm honouring somebody that came before me or I want to be a dancer because I want to travel the world. It's not just, I just want to get on stage and bust a few moves. It's like, what is it within yourself? As Valerie was saying, what taking a look inside, what is your why? Why is it that you decide to work 80% of your time in a cafe when you're a dancer? Why are you still doing this other job to support the other job that actually you don't get as many jobs in? You know, you go here, there and everywhere supporting yourself to be an artist. There's a why within you to keep you getting up to work in Starbucks so you can get maybe three or five jobs a year. You know, there's not many industries where you go to train for three years where the success rate of the amount of jobs that you get per year are the same as being a dancer or an artist. Most of those courses... If it was like engineering, oh, I got one job in engineering this year. They'd close the courses down. Yeah, they would, wouldn't they? Absolutely. And as we say, people don't always do it for the money, but I've been broke and I've had money and I know which one I prefer. So being able to still sustain myself and be like, I do this because I don't want to do anything else. And even if I could, I'd come back to it. As a dancer and a performer, that's what I thought was the thing was being on stage but actually as I've got older and I'm not performing as much it's more about the ideas and creating ideas that are not just dance ideas like oh wouldn't this be a great business model to help dancers wouldn't this be a great something else so for me it's more about the creating and that's when I got more into the choreography that was more interested in the whole creative energy rather than just look at me I'm on stage I'm dancing I still do but I still dance it's more for a social thing rather than getting paid that is not necessarily my livelihood all the time it feels to me that both of you are setting yourselves apart in the dance world and neither of you are conformists both of you combining roles in ways that we really admire at Greenwich Dance we love this idea of business and dance and exploring that and I think you two do that so brilliantly Valerie you describe yourself as a writer model dancer and activist which is quite a collection of descriptions which I love and Cressy you as a movement director and innovator and an alumni from the Institute of Leadership and Management and I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit more about the facets of yourself and how they combine to make that whole and how one role influenced the other and Cressy I wondered if you'd start and perhaps draw a little bit from what you learned at the institute I'm fascinated by that part of your background one of the main things that I learned from there was this thing of how to pitch yourself because so many times when you speak to an artist or a dancer even if it's in an artistic environment but especially if you're talking to somebody that's not from the arts you say what do you do 10 minutes later you still don't know because they talk 
That's why they're an artist. I wish they could just go, oh, what do you do? And then do something, dance. <laughs> It'd look a bit weird in a networking meeting, but what do you do? Oh, I do this. Or yes. what do you do? Pull out a painting. <laughs> that would be great if that could be a thing, but it's not. That's not the world we live in. So when we're in those sort of environments, it's like, what do you do? Oh, I do. Da, 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 done. Because what that instilled in me is like, you could tell somebody a little bit, and it's almost like when you're writing copy in marketing, you just write enough at the top for them to want to read the next bit. So I tell them enough for them to want to know, oh, how do you do that? And then they give you an invitation to have the conversation and you're basically pitching, talking, asking about them. The main thing for me was about asking them about themselves because people love talking about themselves. So once you get them talking to you and relating to you, that's one of the best things I've found from the ILM. But it was also about amplifying your ideas, amplifying your ideas beyond. Okay, so for example, you know, the system that most artists are trying to aspire to is broken. Mm -hmm. The funding system, NPO, all those kind of things. It's like, oh, I want to get to that status, but why would you want to get to a status of something that's broken? And what I mean by that is as a creator, And this is why I draw the line between artist and creator, because everybody can be creative, but not everybody's an artist. And being an artist has a creative pursuit. It's a creative model to get to be an artist. So the thing, again, that he taught me was this idea about creativity running through everything. There's this saying, everything that's not being created by the creator, Yahweh, God, whatever you call them, has been created by nature. And if you think human beings are part of nature, and then nature is part of God, then everything is created by God. So creativity is the mother of invention or innovation. So for me, this idea that we spend a lot of our time as artists in that creative part of our brain, but we don't use it in an entrepreneurial way. We just think, oh, I want to make this piece. I want to tour it to 10 venues and my balance sheet at the end of it has to read zero. How can you be a sustainable artist like that? with a dirty word profit yes it's like how can i be sustainable because then i'm going to keep coming back to arts council and funders which i call state-sponsored art because if you don't tick the boxes you ain't getting the money so how does that make me an independent artist so i don't have to keep coming back to you so i can be an independent artist and touch and connect with people that connect with me rather than knocking on 10 theaters where six of the artistic directors don't like me or like my work And I end up getting four gigs and then I don't get the funding. It's, yeah. yeah, Don't get me started. I don't want to go over <laughs> the whole podcast. <laughs> Talking about the broken funding and touring model. Yeah. You know, that's, that's another podcast, which I am shortly doing myself. So let me stop there. Good. And let us know about that and we will help you promote it. But the pitch, I love that idea of knowing what you do and being able to articulate it really quickly. And what you said about an invitation, leaving that invitation hanging so that somebody then wants to find out more. And actually what you've just started to talk about is that broken system is that creating Creativity is best used when it's creating a solution to a real problem, right? Absolutely. And we, and we often create solutions to things that aren't actually a problem and therefore they're not successful. Mm. So there's some real lovely tips that you've given us there. And Valerie, when I was listening to that Dance Umbrella conversation, you talked about a burnout, which you said for you ultimately changed your approach to your career. And I found that really inspirational because I think that the load carried by women, by creators, and I suspect by black women creators is immense. You're holding a big thing there. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that and how that changed or shifted your journey. Yeah, I think it's quite hard because, again, exactly what Questy was saying about kind of broken systems. It's really hard to sustain yourself because we're just taught that in order to stay relevant, 
and to stay paid you just have to keep going you know I never was ever taught about financial literacy all of the people in my family you know they're not freelance so all of the kind of self-employment stuff I had to learn on my own or learn through peers and you know learning about savings and different bank accounts and all these kind of things it had to be something that I did as I went along so what eventually happened to me was I was taking on so much work in fear of yeah let me be honest about it in fear of being forgotten (laughs) I think it's really easy to forget black women because of the culture and society that we live in it's only now organizations or institutions like Dance East are you know making associate artists programs for women specifically and then if you're at the intersection of being female and black then the visibility is uh (laughs) you know it's very limited so with that knowledge I was trying to And I mean, I still do this to a certain degree, but I was just trying to be everywhere so that that way, if I'm kind of forgotten in one area of the industry, I can kind of save myself financially by being present or visible in another. But that burnout probably was the best thing that ever happened to me, actually, because firstly, it really showed me that you don't have to necessarily work that hard. You just have to work smart Mm. and really value Mm. what it taught me to place a higher value on what I do. So it meant that I was asking people for more money, (laughs) actually. Um, I was working less and I was asking for more Mm. because it made me realise, actually, I'm really, really freaking good at what I do. Mm. I know what I'm doing. I did my degree. I've worked for the companies like Questy that I've always kind of wanted to work for. I think dance is the only industry where the pay grade, (laughs) even if you're professional 10, 15 years on, Mm. you're still earning the same amount that you did when you graduated. Mm -hmm. So I just, I stopped settling for the bare minimum, basically. And I stopped relying on people on on institutions particularly to validate me Mm. and I also got therapy (laughs) because I also understood that a part of my practice was being able to enable my healing actually I didn't want to just come out of hospital and just get straight back onto the horse you know I was in hospital because I'd overworked myself I hadn't taken care of myself so actually self-care has to be a part of the practice otherwise I'm just going to end up back there and not learn my lesson this wasn't any kind of burnout this is burnout that put you in hospital that's massive absolutely it put me in hospital because I was so concerned about doing all the jobs that I needed to do and being everything for everyone and being everywhere all at the same time that I really lost the value for my own health physical mental all of that I completely lost that so that's a part of my practice now when I teach at different institutions or even in company positions and stuff, I really make it clear what I need. Because I think that's another thing. I think dancers are labelled as kind of sensitive for just asking for (laughs) bare minimum, you know? Yeah, just not asking. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's a cultural thing also as well, you know? it is, isn't it? Push, 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 push. You know, oh, we've got the show that's premiering in a couple of days. Oh, you know, we forgot to give you that break. Or, you know, oh, you have to come in and do this 11, 12-hour day and text at this time. And, you know, we kind of forget... Yeah, I mean, we're forgotten about. (laughs) And it's the culture of, especially particularly the contemporary dance kind of model and kind of culture. We really forget that a part of the practice needs to be that we need to take care of ourselves. Otherwise, we can't then continue to do the fantastic work that we do. Yeah, to keep going. 
so this episode is all about making positive change and both of you are doing that in a myriad of ways and one of them I think is calling out behaviours and Valerie you were recently published in the stage challenging the role of the critic and the generalisations that are often made when writing about dancers of colour and I wondered if you wouldn't mind just telling us a little bit more about that I think that was right in the middle of the pandemic too. Yeah absolutely I'm planning to write another article (laughs) by the way because I think as a writer I'm really I mean, I think I've always been aware of it, but uh, funnily enough, I haven't necessarily been able to put into words the kind of the responsibility that dance critics, reviewers, writers have in the industry. I think writers present themselves as this kind of body or organisation or institution that's slightly separate. I suppose from the dance world because they've got this kind of perspective that doesn't necessarily affect them that much. If you write a review about a kind of chilling kind of one star review about a company that you don't like, you know, nothing's going to happen to you. The effect will be that that company probably won't sell as many tickets for their next tour, as an example. So I think the writing and reviewing world negates the responsibility that they have towards dancers, towards artists, towards companies, towards the industry in general. And it's something that's not talked about. We don't talk about the power of the reviewer, the power of their words, the difference it means for them to be able to depict something that happened on stage accurately, to celebrate and kind of glorify the work that's been put in. We don't really talk about that. So being someone that has knowledge about the kind of process, studio process, and if you have a studio process, <laughs> what the rehearsal process, the kind of stage performance, and then also being on the other side, kind of writing about it, I really felt like it was my responsibility to be able to articulate that reviewers, just like dancers and choreographers, we need to step our game up, actually. We need to mm. practice. We talk a lot and dance about having a practice, keeping ourselves fit, keeping ourselves back in class and educating ourselves. Do the reviewers do that? No. <laughs> no. And I think it's important to acknowledge that. It's important to acknowledge the power that we have and that we need to also practice too because yeah. that could be the difference between depicting and writing about something properly and giving it its proper value and just being lazy and (laughs) it's a job just like being a dancer you know we have to make sure it's done correctly done well yeah exactly and because dancers language is the body is physical it's not necessarily words or text I think it's hard for particularly dancers of colour to kind of express the discrepancies that happens when people are writing about their bodies yeah And Kwesi, similarly, you've called out misconceptions about hip-hop theatre. In an article written for People Dancing right back in 2003, you talked about a piece of work that you made, Hip-Hop Story for Teenagers and Young People, where you say hip-hop suffers, as do most subcultures, from media assassination, where they use the bits and pieces they want and appropriate it for their own needs. Hip-hop receives a lot of bad press and it's said that it's causing gun crime. I disagree with that. I mean, what a thing to say. Tell us about that work you made and the myths that you had to try and bust while you were making it. So, yeah, this was a really interesting process because at the time, the work I was creating in the UK at the time, we'd auditioned and we'd auditioned and we auditioned and we couldn't get the quality of dancers. So I'd met the previous year a guy called Clyde Evans. He ran a company called Chosen Dance Company based in Philadelphia. He's working with three, well, he's worked with quite a few, but three of the dancers. I met them at Bates Dance Festival in the US and 
it got three dancers that had been working with, Flitz, Hussein and Marcus. And basically they came over and were in the show, full length show, three dancers. They absolutely smashed it, but they were absolutely broken by the end of it because there was only three of them. But the thing I wanted to get across in that piece was, yes, this is the history of hip hop culture. And a lot of people say, oh, I like hip hop. And I say, which part? And people often say, oh, what do you mean, which part? Because hip hop, a lot of people think hip hop is a music. There is literally no such thing as hip-hop music because the music that's part of hip-hop culture is called rap. Then you've got the other pillars of the culture, which are breaking, which are graffiti, which are beatboxing and DJing. They make up hip-hop culture. So theoretically and realistically, there is no such thing as hip-hop music. So my, I suppose, quest was to dispel that myth that it is violent. It has misogyny. Yes, it does. Some parts of it do. And actually, bad news sells, right? So that's the thing that they're going to promote in the culture which they do for example if within hip-hop culture rap could only be classed as rap if it was empowering and uplifting like gospel music other than that it cannot be classed as rap would be in a very very different place right now with rap Mm. and hip-hop culture Mm. if it had something to start to hold it i mean originally the philosophy was peace unity love and having fun supported by knowledge and wisdom Yes, and you can swing that by saying, oh, this is my knowledge, this is my wisdom. But if it's not used to uplift the community or the people that are listening to the music, for me, it's not rap music. It's not bringing, it's not empowering people. It's just obviously a thing that's been hijacked, as I talked about, by labels that want to sell music. And, you know, a lot of artists that talk about their hard life and whatever they want to negate or be negative, a lot of it's made up. There's a great quote. Actually, it was also about Jay-Z on The Letterman Show, and then there was something with Ice Cube, where they were talking about, isn't hip-hop real life? If hip-hop culture isn't rap real life? And it's like, to the interviewer, and they said, don't be ridiculous. In the same way that movies are a reflection of real life, some are, some aren't. And it's hard for young people to decipher, especially when the artist is being pushed out there to actually be the person that they're rapping about or portraying but actually that's not them the money is talking and they're doing it for the money because if within the industry there was this idea of positive you know you had the idea of a public enemy brand newbie and all these acts and then before we know it gangster rap took over and Mm -hmm. that's what people understand hip-hop as and that's what sold as Mm hip-hop and there's this thing going around recently that there was this conference in the u.s and basically it was literally now we're going to turn rap gangster And a lot of people think, oh, it's a conspiracy. But I actually know two people that were there that were part of that conversation that were artists. And when the record label, when the execs, they said, right, this is how the industry is going to go. If you don't like it, you can go. You won't make any money. So again, going back to hip hop story. So the idea of the piece was about this MC that got shot at a concert that was the person that was a part of the show that we got one of the guys in the audience, came out the audience and shot him. A lot of people thought, is that real? But then when they realized that this guy went back in time and then he picked up the origins and the culture and why it is like it is right now. So that's what we were trying to do with that show to just dispel the myths of what the culture is, because a lot of people don't and still don't and didn't 
know what the culture is. Understand it and tell the story. Valerie, it feels that you're doing a similar thing in a way. You've choreographed and curated value. Is that how you would say it? Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of capitals. A multi-layered project which became recently a photographic project and that was created to offer different perspectives on the black female image and to dismantle history. And it sounds similar in a way to what Cressy was doing there in terms of telling the story of history the way you felt it should be told and not whitewashed as we tend to do, particularly in our educational establishments. I wondered if you'd tell us just a little bit more about that project and perhaps how that kind of tunes to what Kwesi was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree about how there's lots of misconceptions that are put on for a number of reasons, i.e., you know, racism, I mean, and ultimately to uphold white supremacy. But there's a lot of ideas that are placed on black bodies in particular. And I would go as far to say that black female bodies are hypersexualized. That's the inherent nature now. So I started Value, which is an acronym of my name, because I grew a little bit sick and tired of feeling like when I was in companies, in contemporary dance companies particularly, that my story or that my identity was somehow skewed or somehow homogenised. And going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, I knew that there were certain things that I could only say with my own artistry and I didn't want to rely on other people to speak for me because I can't. (laughs) I have a voice, I have a tongue, I can do it all for myself and say things I need to say in my own way. So I started doing a little bit of research. I was doing quite a lot of modelling, life modelling and just fashion modelling in general. And it was always really interesting, my experiences, because often, especially when I was like life modelling, people couldn't draw me. They'd either have trouble drawing my hair or getting my musculature or being able to paint the kind of deep tones of my skin. There was just always quite a lot of trouble. And then I'd always ask the artist at the end, I'd be like, oh, like, why do you think you can't draw me? Or why do you think you're struggling to draw me? And immediately I would see this kind of (laughs) hot flush, red, (laughs) and lots of kind of like stammering, because they'd suddenly realised that actually they'd never drawn a black female body before, or they'd never drawn a black female of natural hair, or they'd never drawn a dark-skinned female. And it led me to kind of realise and do a bit of research and to just see that actually all the archetypes that we know, and archetypes are really, really fundamental in our society. They're the symbols of our language. You know, we understand and we create meaning through symbols. So I'd realised that all the archetypes of femininity and beauty were all white, whether it was like the birth of Venus or Vitruvian man. These two in particular really interested me because these are kind of the pinnacle in art history of the man and the woman, these two binary cockatoo. Types, and neither are black. So it made me realise that actually there's a reason why reviewers can't review black bodies, for instance. They don't have the language to do so, or these artists can't draw black female bodies or our hair or any of these kind of things. And it's because all of our archetypes and all of our symbology have been whitewashed. So there isn't actually a space to kind of it sounds a bit stupid, but to train people, you know, to be able to see a black body and to not immediately place unconscious bias on a body. So what I started doing, because again, through my research, I'd realised that half of these images and half of these archetypes are actually stolen and whitewashed. I started to, if I could say it, reappropriate them. I mean, I don't think there's such a thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't think there's such a thing. We claim. Yeah, exactly. If someone's taken, if someone's taken something from you and you take it back, I mean, it was already yours in the first place, so it didn't really feel like there was reappropriating or anything. It was me simply saying, ah, if you look at this image of me or this dance of me that I'm doing, and you feel you ask yourself why a black body is doing this, then you get your answer. (laughs) If you're asking and questioning that, it's probably something to do with your unconscious bias because you can't see a black female body taking up space in the same way. So the project is ongoing. It's actually going to premiere at the Siobhan Davis studio in September. Oh, brilliant. And it will be there as a part of their archive for the next six months. Because I think it's really important for people to realise that actually, yeah, we've been brainwashed, to be quite honest. And I really wanted to create a safe space for black women to feel that they don't have to adhere to the references that they've been given, that actually they can have autonomy over their body and actually take back what's theirs. And it just happened to be that my name happens to spell value <laughs> That's I found that out halfway through in the making I was like oh yeah actually I'm asking for people to have a higher value on black bo- and for them to actually look at me ah oh, yeah that's my oh, name like, yeah. so it just happens to fuse all of that together <laughs> am I right in thinking that you've got a fundraiser titled let's make shit happen that's linked to that in some way yes yes again I think what I try to do with my independent work in particular is I try to have a kind of should I call it a multi-pronged strategy? Because I think that there's no one answer to kind of solving these problems. Mm. You know, there's not one way to solve things. And going again, back to what I said at the beginning about using all the things that I have, I understand that some people won't necessarily get my dance work, but they might understand what I'm trying to say through my writing. Or they might understand it through an image that I've made with a photographer or through listening to this podcast. So the fundraiser was a way of firstly inspiring people to just make stuff. Again, I think a lot of the time we're so boxed in by, again, exactly what Questy was saying about the funding bodies and institutions and kind of ticking boxes in that kind of sense. So we can get the money to make the big, you know, Sadler's Wells main stage <laughs> production or we're kind of defined by what the templated kind of company structures and the kind of frameworks that have already been given to us. Whereas actually, firstly, yeah, exactly what Questy said about us all being creative. You know, I make earrings out of literally anything because (laughs) one, I just, again, like being practical. I like using my hands. But two, it also reminds me that, yeah, I can dance, yeah, I can write, but there's a whole other world out there that's possible for me if I just lean in and try and practice and you know it can be shit it can be amazing it can be all right but I've given myself the autonomy and permission to just be creative yeah yeah and I also believe again with the fundraiser we don't have to necessarily always rely on institutions or funding bodies to give us the things actually We are so powerful. Our own social networks. We have our own little Mm. ecosystem. And actually, if we dived and put more of our energy into that, rather than looking outside of that, relying on other people and other organisations that will probably never understand our kind of 
struggles, our needs. We saw this during the pandemic, right? Yeah. How many people lost their jobs? How many dancers were freaking out because of all their freelance contracts, realising that they actually have no rights with their contracts, you know? So rather than relying on these organisations that don't put people first, we can actually rely on the people around us and yeah. galvanising our own communities yeah. to ensure that we stay and make- creative and we make shit. You know, I was about to steal your line and say and making shit happen, which is what you've been doing. Make it happen. And Kwesi, this does seem to resonate so much with what you're doing. And there was something that really made me smile when I was digging around on your website. And I saw you say when there's a problem, creatives often find a solution. And we've talked about that a little bit. And I was really interested by a project, Agile Studios, where you were working on the creation of software to enable you to take class or masterclass online wherever you were in the world. But what was so interesting about that is you were doing that in 2012, which was 10 years before a pandemic started to make all of us think... How could we do this? And I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that project. Where is it now? And how do you feel about the fact that you were delving into all of that so long ago? Why didn't we catch on then? Um, The industry is very slow to make any change. Mm. It's very traditional. The people that work in it, you know, it's led by gatekeepers that are not always Mm. tuned in with what's going on. They know their field, but actually no one person can know everything. So the catalyst Mm. for that was we were an NPO. We got cut in 2010, 2012, along with the other 159 individuals and artists. And from that day, it was like, how do I still stay relevant? How do I stay in touch with my audience? And how do I not have to entertain the gatekeepers? Don't get me wrong, there is a place for gatekeepers or tastemakers or what shall we call them, artistic directors, because some people like a short list to choose from. Because if they had everything to choose from, it's like, I cannot get my head around all this choice. But, you know, we have our mobile phone packages personalised. We have our Netflix packages. The amount of things that we have personalised, why can't culture be personalised? Why do we have to choose from a shortlist? So we're working on something to do with that as well, which I'll come to later. But the main thing was for the teaching online was I'd been doing a lot of stuff based around real estate and property. And this was when we were based in Bristol. And a lot of their stuff that they were doing were webinars. And I don't think a lot of people knew what a webinar was in 2012. So it was webinars, they were teaching online. And I said to myself, well, actually, how can I still continue to do this, but do it online? Most people thought, I was crazy. But that's sometimes obviously the sign of a pioneer, right? Because you're there so early that nobody else is even looking in that direction. So for me, it was more about, let me just carry on doing this. I had a few supporters. There was people in the US that I'd been reaching out to teaching. And then Falmouth University, Kuldip Singbami is one of the founding members of Kanduko. He was the person that we auditioned at Northern together. So he was now a lecturer at Falmouth. So he was like, yeah, come and stream some of the students. So I was teaching in Florida and I was in London. You know, I was teaching in Falmouth and I was in London. I'm like, why the hell are people not doing this? Because it's and a lot of the argument with pushback was, oh, it's not like the real thing, is it? I'm like, neither is going to a concert or listening to an mp3 but we don't yeah. compare the two it's just an experience of an art form absolutely so absolutely. why bother comparing it because if you continually compare it you'll always be unhappy it's just a it's yeah. access because at the end of the day all as it is about is about growing your audience and staying connected to your audience so one day you might have 10,000 20,000 people that are following you on your socials for your digital for your work and actually you say oh I want to come to Florida to perform and you know there's 5,000 people there so do you take the note of a critic as we've just talked about 
one critic or do you listen to 5,000 people that like your work? You just say to the theatre, can we forewall your theatre? We've already sold the tickets. Can we go in, do your thing, do your performance, greet your audience and then move out? Some theatre directors, artists, directors will still say no because their ego and they've made a career out of having an opinion. And I'm only saying this because it's really crucial now that artists, all types of artists, particularly people of colour, where we're still up against this whole thing of racism and all the things that stop us in the industry. Actually, if we're looking at continuing to build our art and build our audience through the traditional ways of doing a 10-date tour, befriending an artistic director, befriending a critic, our days are numbered as artists, not just people of colour, but artists, because one, the venues have got to reduce their numbers because we have to, because we've been told to. Then there's another thing of increasing energy prices to run the lights, etc., etc. So there's going to be less funding around. There's going to be less, 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 less. But there's still the same amount of artists, still the same amount of time-based artists. How do we connect with our audience? We have to build our audience and tell our own stories, because if we rely on other people telling our stories, one, they'll often get it wrong, or two, they just won't tell it at all. So we have to tell our stories through our work. And if we feel our work is best experienced in a theatre, then everything that you put out online is a roadmap to lead people to the theatre. Not, oh, I'm doing this, or I don't want to do digital because I don't like digital. I just want to perform in a theatre. Yeah, but do you want to perform to an empty theatre? Or not at all, because that artistic director of a building, less money, more energy bills, has to make a decision based on finance. Mm. So where does the line stop where you might be a great artist that's making really great work, but if you've not got a following, the decision is often made about money. Yeah. Chris, you've got such a good handle on the business of your art, I think, which, as you said earlier, that could also be another podcast. But just to pick up and ask about an example of something that you've just been talking about, you've got a project on your website, Martello Tower. It was a commission for you to find a way to make business sense and attract people to an area of Felixstowe. And I was drawn to an explanation on on your website where you said that you didn't want to create a space that would struggle financially, as a lot of community and art spaces do if they rely solely on the community and the art. And we know that's true, don't we? We know that we are absolutely reliant on subsidy to make those sorts of spaces work. And the sorts of spaces that we've seen, and you know, we were at a community centre this weekend, you look at it and you just think, if only someone could, you know, this is a beautiful space and it's used by people, but if only it could have investment made into it. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what you applied to that space to try and do what you were setting out to do, to try and create a business case for a space that might draw people to it. Multi-purpose, multi-use. Yes, hire the space out. Yes, have community use it. But find multi-uses for the space and also the things that you're putting on there make them investable and not just that was nice we enjoyed ourselves family day out it's being able to be resourceful and think completely out of the box because often a lot of people that are in charge of those spaces they have a certain way of thinking i'll apply for some funding and if we don't get the funding we can't do it how about doing other things that are profitable and investable and you know doing events that are completely out of the box and not necessarily completely in line with the centre but they just do other things other than the thing that we're you know it's a community centre but actually maybe not call it a community centre call it something else an innovation centre because as soon as you say innovation even just the word it's like oh that becomes much more interesting than a community centre so Mm. that's kind of what I applied to that but that was probably seven years ago and my website has not been updated for quite a long time but um, what we're doing now is still this idea of 
not having to ask permission to do the art. And this was all stemmed from the 2012 of like, how can I still get my work out there and also allow other artists and creatives to either follow suit, do the same or inspire. So we're using a lot of augmented reality and virtual reality stuff now, but they're not just online. It's like, how do you bring people physically together to experience virtual reality? So we created a thing called Up My Street two years ago, and that's a virtual reality art, culture and performance trail. So you basically walk around the streets and for example, you might see a dance performance on the side of a building. You might point it at a poster and you hear a bit of spoken word. You might be the poster you've created as an artwork from somebody but actually it comes alive with the augmented reality in the headset and this again gives you the opportunity to approach organizations and companies on the same level as them because it's quite often as artists they'll go to an organization with their hands out and a begging bowl there's a finite amount of times that people will say no to help me but if you say i can help you it's infinite. So as artists, we need to know our place as approaching organizations as equals. So for example, the stuff that we're doing with the augmented reality, I can go to a town center and say, how can I help you increase footfall? Yeah. You empower yourself as an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The same thing with the empty properties that we take on. We approach the landlord and say, how would you like us to save you £20,000 a year? What landlord is going to say no? So if we turn your space into a creative innovation space, let's go, let's talk. We have a deal. And you're making new marketplaces for yourself there, aren't you? You're using what you do best. All the stuff we talked about earlier, looking back at your why, looking about who am I, Mm. what are all your strengths, how you package them up, how you pitching them, and then creating brand new market spaces, probably completely new collaborators, Mm -hmm. probably completely new financial investors. Mm -hmm. And you're moving your work away from that subsidised sector, which I think is just so brilliant. And I, Valerie, in a way, I think you've got that too. I mean, when I was looking at your website, I don't know if this is conscious or subconscious, but your own awareness of your marketing and branding is so appealing and you don't always see that of artists you don't see them applying those tools of marketing to themselves but I got this sense that you understood the business of you actually and the way you presented that to the world which was really exciting now I know that I'm getting close to knocking on an hour so one more question if you don't mind and this is completely plagiarized from the website pilot one of your collaborators Valerie Henry Gorse so hands up in the air stolen completely and the question was do you have any advice for younger artists fighting against the norm and Valerie perhaps a couple of things that you might give some artists as advice Uh, I think just again in the spirit of theft (laughs) I think Questy's really right about like knowing your why knowing why you do what you do and I mean I have my why written in my coat pocket on a piece of paper, which I look at when I forget. (laughs) But yeah, I think it's knowing your why, but I also think as well is like not devaluing your other skills, not devaluing all the things that make you you. I really believe that even though I do quite a lot of things, the lens that I approach the things that I do is always choreographic. It's always with dance in mind. You know, I don't think of myself when I'm writing as it, to be a completely different thing. I have my own choreography to the way I write and that keeps me interested in what I do. I think of fashion and modelling as moving image. It still relates to my dancing. So it keeps me invested and interested in what I do. So I think it's really important to... I mean, because the industry is really difficult. (laughs) It's really, really, really a hard industry to stay in and to stay enthusiastic about also as well so I would just suggest knowing your why and holding on to it but also not devaluing the other skills that you have 
and using them to keep you creative and enthused. Lovely. Chrissy, how about you? Just going back to even in our training, a lot of people, they have a foundation course to get into college. Where's the rooftop course to get out? (laughs) Why do courses not teach people about the business of the art? Why is there nothing that helps people? Like I said before, if you are going to spend 80% of your time working at Starbucks, what can you do in that 80% of the time when you are not working at Starbucks so you don't have to work at Starbucks? Let's look at the creator economy. So if people don't know what the creator economy is, search the YouTube and you'll understand what the creator economy is. And like I say, because we spend a lot of the time in that creative part of our brain, as an artist, doesn't necessarily make you a creator. It's about putting content out on the things that interest you, on your terms. So you don't have to work at Starbucks. You can concentrate on making your own work. Because if you start to build your own audience, independently of a theatre, independently of a critic, independently of an artistic director, you own that audience. Well, you don't own them, but you have direct connection to that audience. Then that audience starts to support you to create the work. We've talked about crowdfunding. It's a great thing that was around, but we're also starting this other thing based around a DAO, which is Decentralized Autonomous Organization. And this is what's happening a lot in the crypto world. So that's another thing I'd say for younger artists, look in other industries for your answers. Because if you look into the arts, it's very traditional and it doesn't actually move that quickly. Even though it's a creative industry, they're not that creative in its survival. (laughs) So there's 4.66 billion people online, roughly, with access to the internet. Do you think you might be able to find your tribe or find your audience out there? But make stuff that's for the internet, not just pointing your camera at the stage and having a flat representation of what your stage show was. Make a film, make something that can be consumed in a one minute short on Instagram Reels. Make stuff for the medium that you're trying to attract the audience. And then eventually you can bring those audiences into the space that you want them to get into. And another thing I'd say is try and solve problems with the work that you're doing. If you can solve a problem, you'll never be out of work. If you can solve a problem with the work that you do, you'll never be out of a work doing the work that you do. And that means, oh, how can I solve a problem doing a 10-day tour around Salisbury and Gloucestershire? You can't. You can, to an extent. But what else can you add to that to help you solve a problem? For example, I'll go, as the world tipped, Wired Aerial Theatre, they did a piece. Here's a grand piece that I saw. It's great. And it talked about global warming. And I know there's a few organisations that were into global warming that helped them financially. So how can you, if you've got an idea, rather than it just being focused on my 10-day tour around the country, you'd be lucky if you get that these days, my tour around the country, what else can I do with that idea to amplify it and to find my tribe out of my town, out of my country and off this little island? There's a whole world out there. So that's what I'd say. Most of all, just believe in what you're doing. Absolutely inspirational. Can I jump on the back of that? Please do. (laughs) I forgot about this before. I was saying this to the young associates that I met at Southers Wells the other day. I think it's similar to what you're saying, Kwesi, about community. And I think as well, a lot of the time at dance school, which is quite good in some senses, we're taught the nature of kind of competition. Like we're constantly auditioning for stuff. You have to be the best, you have to be the best, you have to be the best. But actually what I found when I left dance school is that the people around me, the friends that I kept, were integral to my success. The people that you have to support you, they're not your enemies. Your other dance friends, your other choreographers. It's always this thing, I've got my idea and I'm going to do my own thing over there and you do your own thing over there. I would really love 
and encourage people to really find support and find their tribe and keep to that because that's also how we survive in this industry as well the people that we've got supporting us and the audiences that we create brilliant thank you so much there's always so much more that we could say and this podcast has been no different in fact I feel like I could go on for another hour but I know I mustn't so that does feel like a good place to stop and thank you both for joining me today if you would like to hear more episodes about subjects moving artists of today search for Talking Moves wherever you get your podcasts don't forget to subscribe leave a review and spread the word and if you'd like to be part of the Arts Unboxed family and do dance differently with us at Greenwich Dance inspired by our guests of today who are doing just that email us at info at greenwichdance.org.uk with podcasts in the title and we'll get in touch. And an extra special thanks to Jason Caffrey of Creative Kin for supporting us with today's podcast. To find out more about how he can help yours and the services he provides, go to creativekin.co.uk. But for today, that's it from us. Do join us next time for more Talking Moves. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you.